Well, good morning, family. <clears throat> what is your name? Seriously, what's your name? I need some. All right, go ahead. Yell it out. Yell it out to me. What is your name? <laughs> I got a full name down here. <laughs> Cindy. That'll we'll take that. Cindy. We're gonna. Oh, Sydney. Oh, I got corrected. Sydney. All right, that's good. That's good. What else? <laughs> high school here? Is this? Yes. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Name back there. Give it to me. What was it? Jimmy. Jimmy. That's good. Got it. Sorry. We had like a Fergie here first hour. I don't know. Not, not for real though. I think we just misheard it, but it was still cool to say Fergie was here. All right. What else? Maybe over here a name. Debbie. I heard Debbie. Cool. All right. We're going to put some names up on the board uh, as we go here. Have you ever wondered... Why did I get the name that I got? I mean, what, maybe you've wondered maybe why your parents gave you the name uh, that they gave you. Um, I remember the first time I found out why my sister, she's two years younger than me, Christy, why she got her name Christy. My mom, she had gone up into the attic. She found some old books that she had when she was a little girl. She took two books, set them aside, brought them down uh, to my sister and I. And the and, uh, first book she gave was to me, and it was Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. And uh, a great book, and uh, I've since read it. Um, and my mom went to go ahead, and she proceeded to tell me, like, the whole story, okay? For some reason, she thought I should know it before I read it. But um, it, it's a story about the, these two guys, two friends. There's George, and there's Lenny. And the uh, interesting thing about the story is you have Lenny, um, who he would probably, we, we'd say he had mental delays or he, he wasn't that smart. And, and uh, because he, he's got some, some mental challenges, he, he makes decisions that aren't always smart decisions. And uh, as a result, it would get him in trouble. And um, spoiler alert, she did tell me the end of the story. For, she wanted to warn me, said it has a sad ending. Um, she said, I'll just tell you that, George, that Lenny gets into so much trouble that George thinks he has to shoot Lenny in the head um, at the end of the story so that he avoids punishment. And, um, and so it's a beautiful story. It's got a sad ending, but, uh, you know, enjoy, read. And so I took it. And so, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and um, then she gave this other book to my sister Christy. It was the book called Christy by Catherine Marshall. And uh, in, my mom began to explain that she read this when she was a little girl. It's a story of this, this beautiful young woman who just has an outstanding faith uh, in God. And, and God continues to bless her in her life, and so she blesses others. And then she went to, on to explain that, that my mom, she knew when she had a daughter someday, she would be just like my sister Christy. She would be this beautiful young lady who is just blessed by God, and she would bless others. And, and that's actually how she got the name Christy. And that's about the time that it hit me that, that, you know, when my mom thinks about my sister Christy, it reminds her of a story of this beautiful young lady who's just, just you know, see where I'm going. Um, she, she, beautiful young lady, just blessed by God, blesses others. And when my mom thinks of me, it reminds her a story of this mentally challenged dude um, <laughs> that they have to shoot in the head because he keeps getting into trouble. Uh, yeah, it hurts a little still. Um, have you ever wondered, what do people think about when they think about you? Um, or, or maybe you've wondered, you know, what do people think about when they hear my name? Do they think positive thoughts? Do they think negative thoughts? Or maybe you're sitting there today and you're going, I wonder if people even think about me at all. I, I, wonder, I wonder if I'm invisible. 
You know, maybe you feel that way. Maybe you can look around this room and you go, I don't even know if anybody really even knows my name. Or maybe they know my name, but do they really even know me? I, I remember I have two boys, uh, Parker, who's age six, and Mason, who's age four. And uh, I remember the day they came to me, they kind of had this half smirk on their, uh, on their face, like they had something on dad. And um, they pulled me aside and they said, Daddy, we want you to know, we know your real name. And so I was curious. He's like, you do, do you? He's like, oh, yeah, we know your real name's not Daddy. That's right. <laughs> and, and so then I was locked in. I was like, well, well, tell me, what's my name? And so very excitedly, they told me, your real name is Uncle Tom. That's it. Yep. That's right. I, I didn't have the heart to correct them. So I just said, yeah, that's it. Don't tell anyone. Um, but, but I realized the only time they ever heard me not call Daddy was by their cousins. And so I was, I was Uncle Tom. Um, but, but have you ever, have you ever just wondered, you know, do do people know me? Do do they even know my name? Do they know who I am, how I'm wired? Do they even care? Uh, Maybe you've had this thought that, you know, what if I'm driving to work tomorrow and I just somehow get hit by a Mack truck? That's the end of me. I'm done. And, uh, Now I'm going to cry a little, I think. That's a little laughter. All right. Well, let's think about that for a second. What if, what if it was done? What if it was done tomorrow? Do you ever have a thought, how long would it take them to replace me at work? How, how long would they actually wait to fill my spot? You know, it, would people even notice that I was gone? Would they miss me? Or would people not even know really who they're even missing? You see, I think this morning, if you've ever felt that way, or maybe you do feel that way, and I've felt that way, I think that's, that's a normal way to feel sometimes, to feel invincible, to wonder, does anybody know me? But, but I want you to know something. The Apostle John took the time to wrote, write down some very important words for us to hear this morning. If you have your Bible, would you open them up to the Gospel of John? John chapter 1. And John writes a story. He, he, writes, he writes all the accounts of Jesus' ministry that, that he can fit on paper. He writes them from a personal perspective. This is his story and his account of, of Jesus' uh, events. And so he's, he writes all about what Jesus does, the things he says, and, and really starts to tell us what it means. The interesting thing, I think, is when John starts the story of Jesus in John chapter 1, he doesn't call Jesus Jesus right away. He picks a particular phrase, very intentional. He calls Jesus the Word. And they may may not mean anything to you right now, but we're going to kind of look at that here. Why does he call Jesus the Word? But as we read through the Scriptures, I want you to know that every time you see the Word or the phrase the Word, is talking about Jesus. So let's start John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was Jesus, or the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, if you know any bit of Bible or, you know, have heard of the Bible, you probably recognize this phrase, in the beginning. It's the the way the Bible starts out, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. And so John starts his gospel in a similar way. In the beginning, Jesus. In other words, we live in a world where there's chronology. We have a timeline, okay? There's past, there's present, there's future. There's cause and effect. 
And what John is saying, what if we could just jump off that timeline for a second and just and end up somewhere over here in eternity? Something that, a place that doesn't necessarily play by the times, uh, by the rules of cause and effect, but perhaps a place from which cause and effect were created. A place that doesn't uh, play by the rules of time because there is no time, it's eternity. And he says, in the beginning, before there was a beginning, outside of a beginning, in eternity, there was Jesus. And then he says this, Jesus was with God. In other words, we know that Jesus takes on the role of the Son. You have God the Father and then, and then God the Son and Jesus, and that Jesus has this very personal, intimate relationship with the Father. Nobody can quite describe to us the Father like the Son. And then John makes a really bold statement. Not only was the Word with God, but Jesus was God. It's not like he was like God. He was God. The essence of God. That, that yes, there's this father and son relationship, but there's also, also this thing that just unites them in that they are both one and the same God. It's a deep theological idea. But I'll be honest, my four-year-old gets this idea. In fact, uh, if you haven't noticed, if you go into our lobby, we have this statue of like Jesus kneeling down and washing the feet of Peter. And uh, my, my two boys love to go, if they see that statue, they just run at it, jump on Jesus, start climbing him. I, I just call that heaven practice. I mean, seriously, when, when I get to heaven and I see Jesus, I'm just going to run at him, jump on him, climb all over the guy. I, I just, that's, that's it. Yeah, so I'm okay if they get that early start. And like in kid world, if you can climb on Jesus, that's pretty cool. If you can climb all the way to the top of Peter, you're like awesome for that day. You're kid of the day. So, but the, the, the other day, my four-year-old, he, he just, he kind of, you know, tugs on my side and says, hey, daddy, I'm going to go climb on God. And uh, my six-year-old quickly corrects him and says, no, we're going to go climb on Jesus. And my four-year-old says back to the six-year-old, same thing. So, you know, same thing. If he can get it, surely you can get it. God and Jesus, same thing, okay? Um, back then, even the Christians had a, had a struggle, they struggled with this concept. And, and so there was this belief that actually came out of Christianity, but it became what we would call heretical. It, it became a false teaching. And, and it was led by these people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics came up with a theory. They, they were trying to wrestle with some ideas and, and trying to measure grace and things like that that are immeasurable. And so, but they came up with this idea that they, they figured they solved it. And so what the Gnostics said was, in the beginning, there were two things. There was God and there was matter. And it says that God and matter are both eternal. And, uh, and that God was perfect, but matter was imperfect. And so a perfect God would never get his hands dirty messing with imperfect matter. And so the two were separate from each other. And, and then what they proposed was that somewhere around the scope of eternity, like a God particle broke off of God and became kind of its own entity. It was a distant shadow of God. In fact, it was an imperfect God. And it became almost the secondary God, what we could call an evil God. And this evil and perfect God then decided to do something with evil and perfect matter. And they would say, that creator God created our world. And they said, that's why there's evil in the world. Because an evil God created an evil world, and we're evil people living in it because we're made up of matter. And they, they went further and said, and that's the God of the Old Testament. That's why when you read the Old Testament, sometimes God can seem mean. Sometimes God uh, can seem judgmental or intolerant. 
And, and then they say Jesus is the representation of that good, perfect God who jumped in, who showed up. They said Jesus, he wasn't human. They totally get rid of that because human would be made of matter. But the, he's, he's the perfect God trying to get our attention, trying to make up for the Old Testament God, the evil God. And John won't have any of that. John doesn't start off and says, in the beginning there was this God, matter, and then this other God. John says, no, in the beginning there was God. And he says this in verse 3. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, in the beginning there was God, Jesus, same thing. All right? And God has a rare ability that only God has. In Latin, it's called ex nihilo. It's the idea that only God has this rare ability to create something out of nothing. And what God did was spoke. And all of a sudden, there was something. There was a universe. And that God created, crafted, and molded. That Jesus took his hands and created and crafted this earth we lived on. And he didn't say it was evil. He said it was good. And that all things have come through this Jesus. All creation has come through him. Nothing has escaped his grasp. So therefore, if Jesus is God, then he is all-knowing, just like God is. Which means he's all-knowing about everyone. Meaning he knows you. Not only does he know you because he's all-knowing, he knows you because all things were created through him. And you did not slip his grasp. He did not slip through his fingers as he was creating things. He used his fingers to create you. If you have your bulletin, I want you to, to write down this, this point that you, if, if you get this, you can begin to get the rest. And this is a simple truth that Jesus knows your name. Because he's all-knowing, because he is God. And because everything, including you, was created through him. You're not invisible to Jesus. You never were. In fact, Jesus knew you before you knew you. Jesus knew your name before you knew your name. Jesus knows exactly how you're wired because he wired you that way. I mean, think about it. Who else knows how our TV is put together other than the people who made it? Who knows our, ma- our microwave better than the manufacturer? And though I hate taking my car there, but if my mechanic can't figure it out, I have to take my car to the dealer. Because they made it. They know it. They probably made what's wrong with it, but they, <laughs> but they know it, right? Jesus knows your name. He's known it since the dawn of time. He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows your past. See, John is telling us that the same man he writes about, the same guy who created water into wine... At a wedding, the same man who met with a Samaritan woman at a well, the same man who stood on a mountain and was transfigured, the same man is the same God who created you and me. And while he was all-powerful and became all-personal to John, he is still all-powerful and all-personal to you and me. And you may not be able to handle that. You may reject that idea. How could this powerful God know me? But I know that there is at least a small part of you that knows this to be true. You may not have been listening to this part of you, but I know it's there. 
The reason I know it's there is because John knows it there. And this is the very reason John picks the phrase he, he chooses, the word he chooses, when he says, in the beginning was the word. It's a phrase you would recognize if you were Hebrew. It's a word that he uses to spell it out in the Greek called logos that you would recognize if you were not. In other words, hang with me for a second because we're going to break down this word because John picks this word for a very particular reason. He's writing to two different types of people. Some who would have a Jewish background and understand the Old Testament scriptures or have heard them over and over. And then some who have not, the Gentiles, but they would have grown up with a Greco-Roman background and understand Greek philosophy and such. And so John writes this phrase, uses a word that would begin to jog ideas into your head very much so on purpose. So let's pretend you grew up Jewish, if you did not. In in Jesus' day, about a hundred years before Jesus begins walking the earth, you have ancient Hebrew, and it's becoming a forgotten language. And over about a hundred years' time, ancient Hebrew morphs into a more common modern language called Aramaic. Now, Aramaic has its roots in ancient Hebrew, but it's been influenced by Arabic language. And so by the time of Jesus' day, most Jews spoke Aramaic and barely understood any Hebrew. It's kind of like, you know, our modern English is is tied to Anglo-Saxon. That Anglo-Saxon was the source, but over time it's morphed into modern English. And so we can go back and read Beowulf, but we have no idea what it's saying because we don't speak that language anymore. And so we have to have a translator for English into English. (laughs) And it was the same way then. And so what would happen is if you're Jewish, you would go to the temple, you would go to church, you would hear the scriptures read to you in ancient Hebrew because the priest could read it. But it doesn't mean you understood it. So then they would read an Old Testament scripture in ancient Hebrew, and then they would read what was called a targum. And a targum was a translation of that scripture into modern-day Aramaic. And the priest would go ahead and do these translations. And so if you're a modern Jew, you would hear the phrase, the memra, the word of God, used over and over in Targums. It was kind of like the fall-to phrase, you know, it, when all else fails. It, it, it would represent certain things. It would jog to your memory one thing, would be the power of God. That, that when, when they would read about the power of God, that translated in the Targums, they would use the word of God to describe the power of God. In other words, that it was this idea that it was like a power that went out from God, yet was still attached to him. And they would say like this, like God spoke his word and and he spoke the earth into being. There's power in his word. God speaks and things happen. The word of God is the power that makes it happen. And then they they would go and use this as an idea for the will of God. Not just the will of God in heaven, but it was this idea that somehow the heart and mind of God are present here on earth. That somehow there's, there's like the heart and mind of God and it's moving. It's moving constantly among creation. It's how we can kind of sense that there's something off with the world. It's not how God intended it, but yet God's trying to do something about it. It's how we can sense right from wrong in morality. They would say it's, it's, the, it's the, um, the word of God speaking into the earth. And that that's, we can kind of sense that. And then we see there's these Old Testament scriptures that the priest didn't know what to do with. There are these Old Testament scriptures that in their mind, especially during Jesus' day, they felt like there were were verses that made God seem too personal. And that made them uncomfortable. There there were conversations where it said God spoke to Moses and they would have a conversation like they were buddies. You know, that God would speak to David and, and it just seemed like God was more of a person than a deity. And so when they would translate them into Targums, they, they wouldn't say, well, God spoke to Moses. They would say, the word of God spoke to Moses. 
The word of God spoke to Israel or to, to David. They wanted anything where God seemed personal, they just called him the word of God. And so if you're Jewish and you hear John say the word, all of a sudden your mind would jolt to, well, that's something powerful. That's something that's connected to God, moves out from God, is moving through the earth, is speaking into creation, and it's something that's personal about God, almost if God could be a person. If that was even possible, it would, it would kind of look like that. But let's say for a moment you're not Jewish. You wouldn't know any of that. Let's say you grew up in, in the Roman Empire and you would understand Greek philosophy. And so you would recognize the word John used to describe, logos. And you would, the first thing you'd probably think about when you heard that word is you'd go back to your, your childhood teachings of the philosopher Heraclitus. See, Heraclitus said that logos is this controlling force that moves throughout the world. While the rest of the world seems in chaos, while things seem like they're spinning out of control and there's something wrong, that there's somehow this force that's moving through the, through the earth, through creation, that's holding it all together. And if it wasn't for Logos, we wouldn't be here. The world would fall apart. But even though there's so much bad and so much wrong, there's some good somewhere holding this all together. And, they, and what Heraclitus said, that's Logos. Then the Stoics, they took that idea. And they taught, yes, that, that Logos is this force moving through the world, but it's also pattern. You can see it in patterns in the world. In other words, you can look into creation, and you can see that there's these, these patterns. There's seasons, there's tides, there's night and day. You can look into the universe, and you can see there's orbits of planets. There's, a, there's an order to things. You can look at the human body and see that there's this orders of patterns. And they say that you're not just there for no, for no reason. What the Stoics believed was this is a language. This is a communication piece. This is some higher being trying to communicate to lower beings. We're not totally sure what he's saying, but we know this much to be true. It's a divine message. It's a divine message, this Logos, stamped upon creation. And then there's this other philosopher who comes along named Philo. And Philo takes it a step further. He says, yes, Logos is this controlling force holding the world together. Yes, Logos is this divine message that's speaking into creation. We're not sure what it's saying, but we know it's there. He said, and Logos must be the oldest thing in existence. It has to be. And that's how he explained. He said, Logos must be that through which everything was created. And that's why Logos has its stamp on everything, including the human mind. This logos is how we get the ability to think, how we get the ability to reason, how we get the word logic. And so if you're Greek and you hear John use, in the beginning was logos, you'd go, oh, he's talking about that powerful force that's moving through the world, holding it together, that's somehow good when everything else is bad. Oh, oh he's, he's talking about those patterns we sense in the world that's something bigger than ourselves we know is here trying to communicate to us. We just don't know what it is or what to call it. Uh, he's going, oh, He's talking about that thing through which all things were made. You see, I think we can sense it today. There's something moving and speaking through creation. It's how the surfer can go out into the ocean and, and sense the rhythm of the waves. It's how the farmer knows the seasons and knows when to, to plant crops and when to reap them. It's how the artist knows which colors go together, how the stylist knows how to match things up. That there are rhythms in this world. There's a message coming out to us. It's a powerful message. It's speaking. It's perhaps calling our name. And it's personal. 
And what John would say, it's not a something, it's a someone. And he's been trying to communicate to us from the dawn of creation. John would say, Jesus is making his name known. That's what he's been doing. You can sense it. Even a small part of you can sense it, whether you listen to it or not. He is making himself known. He says this in verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, he says this. Jesus is like this illuminating light, this message that's brightening things up. It's communicating about life. See, we have this false idea in the world that there's light and there's darkness and that they are two equal opposing forces. Like a yin and a yang. It comes from Buddhism and Hinduism. But John won't have that. He says, no, there's darkness and darkness is simply the absence of light. But when light shows up, that's what there is. Light always triumphs over darkness. There's no equality in the two. In other words, the room could be totally dark right now. And it's just because we haven't turned on the light. But as soon as we turn on the light, darkness flees. There are times in our life where it looks like darkness is winning, that that the light's about to go out, but light is like the Rocky Balboa of all things. You know, you think it's down for the count, it just comes back up and it shines brighter and wins. And John is saying, light wins. And Jesus came to bring light to reveal this truth. He has been calling out through creation. He's been calling a message into creation. He's been calling out your name to make his name known. He says this in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Or he just lets it out there in verse 14. He just puts it this way. The word became flesh. Totally foreign idea. That this all eternal God, this creator God, would become like us. In fact, it says he made his dwelling among us. The the Greek word there, it's the idea that he pitched his tent in our camp. It's like you're at Fort Wilderness, and, uh, and you've set up your camp, and you're sitting around the campfire, you're roasting a marshmallow, all of a sudden a camper drives up, it's Jesus, he hops out, says, scoot over, give me a stick, I'm bunking with you. You know, it's, Jesus says, I'm here, I am here, I'm going to be with you. It is that the creator broke into the timeline of creation and became a creature. Why? Why would he do that? See, Jesus knows that before he arrived, we have a limited perspective of who God is. Jesus came to give us the full perspective of who God has always been and who he will always be. It's kind of like my two-year-old Avery. Um, She she has this propensity to want to run into the middle of the street. (laughs) But as her father, I'm not having that, and I discipline her for that. And as far as her perspective allows, she just thinks daddy's mean. You know, daddy's just this punishing, oppressive father who just enjoys this somehow and, uh, you know, does this. But, but as she matures and as she grows and as her perspective begins to broaden and when she becomes a mother herself someday, she'll realize that, no, daddy was not being mean. I have a broader perspective, a fuller perspective. It's always been about love. And Jesus comes in to do the same thing. So as you look at the God of the Old Testament, he may seem mean, intolerant, judgmental, but guess what? I'm here to show you what it's always been about. And it's always been about love. He says, you want to see the Father? You look at me. I have always been like God, and God has always been like me. The problem is, when you look in verse 10 and 11, it talks about how he came, he revealed the fullness of God, yet the world rejected him. Even the people who were expecting him to arrive didn't like how he showed up. And so they did not receive him 
However, there were a few in verse 12. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can say, Tom, well, aren't we all kind of children of God? Well, we're all image bearers of God. We were created in his image, which relates us at some level. But it doesn't necessarily mean we dwell with him. In other words, I got distant cousins all over the country and world, perhaps, and and that's great, and we're related at some level, but I don't know who, or who they are or where they are. They don't all get to reap the blessing of dwelling with Tom. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't live in my house, you know. Yes, we're related and family at that level, but we're not really family. We don't dwell together. You see, I think so many times we, we miss the perspective of heaven. We look at heaven as a place when it's really more about a person. We think maybe we could trick God and slip into this paradise and enjoy it and probably Jesus would be hanging over there at his throne with all the people he really likes and, and uh, they'll have a party over here and I'll just get to enjoy my little hut in heaven and that'll be good. And, and we don't realize that, no, that relationship with Jesus is paradise. That relationship with Jesus, when, we, when we're able to see him and experience him, there is no reason to cry. There is no more pain. There is no more sorrow and sadness. It's a relationship that starts here and goes through eternity. Jesus is heaven. Jesus is paradise. A relationship with Jesus is all about that. He knows your name. He's been calling out your name so that he can make his name known to you. Why? So that you can know him. So that you can know his name and believe in him. So you could dwell with him. So you could be a child of God. Jesus knew your name before you knew your name. Jesus knew your name before it hit the board. In fact, you can make a good argument. Jesus created the board. He created this plane of existence and he has got a much better one waiting for you. He knows how you're wired. He thought of you. He placed you over here. And perhaps the whole time he did it, he had a message for you. Perhaps if you were to, to listen and tune in to a message that you, you know is there, if you're honest with yourself, you know it's saying something to you. Maybe you don't know exactly what it's saying. But if you could see it, if you could hear it, I think it would speak to you. And you would hear him say, I know you. I've always known you. I know how you're wired. I know what you've been through. I know what you're feeling in every moment. I know what you've done. You need to know that it's always been about love. Jesus is calling out your name. He wants you to know he knows you. You're not invisible. He sees you right where you sit right now. Your response, he's calling out for a response, is to get to know him. I want to invite our prayer partners to come forward at this time. We're going to sing a song. And maybe today, actually, I know today, if you've not made this decision, today is the day to make this decision. He's been calling out your name. Today is the day to declare his name. 
to not just call him Jesus, but to call him Lord and to call him Savior. And if you've not made that decision, this morning is the time to come forward to meet our prayer partners downstage as we sing this song and declare Jesus' name to confess him as your Lord and Savior and let them celebrate that with you. For the rest of us, let's stand up. Let's stand up because we're going to declare his name. Getting to know Jesus isn't a one-time thing. It's something we're going to be doing for eternity. But our response this morning is going to be to cry out his name, to declare his name, not just so these four walls can hear it, but so that the whole world can hear it beyond these walls. And we will declare his name by how we sing and by how we live. He knows you. Let's let the world know that we know him.